obviously, but Spurgeon calls that the, a trio of mercies. He's a shield, our glory, and the lifter of our head. Jeannie, when we sing that he's released me from our fears and you said hallelujah, that just made my heart happy. It's awesome to serve a God who redeems us and makes us new again. Let me, let me just throw something. This, I was just kind of thinking about this. As, as I looked out, and I don't know that I counted right, but I counted about 45 people here tonight. Um, we have 355 members at Rayford Road, which means we have about 12% of our church here tonight. Um, I, I, I mean, I completely understand that different people do different things. I'm not trying to say that being here is part of what it means to be a member, but... It just strikes me that I think there are a lot of people who are committed to our body and we've committed to them that I wonder if we're reaching out to our own people enough. And and I just want to encourage all of us uh, to make sure that we are reminding people that you are our brothers and sisters and we want you here with us. We pray for you. We love you. Um, Let's not be content to have many of us show up for just an hour a week and then go home with very little conversation. Let us be the ones who kind of break that ice. Um, So let's go to Psalm 3. I will, as I'm flipping there, I'll tell you that this week I... You know, we were planning on doing the, the this family day. So I was studying this more just kind of personally, and I've enjoyed the song, but I hadn't been studying it as how to teach it. And so I, I worked on that a lot today, but <clears throat> hopefully it'll come out clear. Y'all can pray for me as we do it. <clears throat> Excuse me, my allergies got a little bit coughing, so I'm sorry that that's... Every time I cough, it's in the microphone, so you have to listen to it. Um, How about this? I I won't do very much introduction at all. What I will ask you to do is stand with me, um, and we'll read this in honor. I will stand in honor of reading God's Word together. This is Psalm 3. It's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O God, for you strike all of my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just ask as we study this passage today that you will encourage us uh, in light of the many foes who are trying to tell us there is no salvation in you. I pray that you will lift our heads, that you will remind us that salvation belongs to the Lord, and you will give us a a confident rest, a peace in you, uh, also a passion to tell people that you will redeem us from many, many sins. We thank you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated. I I just want to walk straight through this passage, and we'll start by looking at the superscript. I think we've talked about this before. Thank you. I probably will. Um, The superscript is part of of the Bible text, right? So most of our Bibles have a maybe a title to the message, and that's a publisher will do it. So if you have an ESV or a King James, there'll be different titles, but all of us should have the superscript that says that this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That should be consistent in all of our Bibles. 
because it's part of the Bible text, right? And I, I just want to point out a couple things. One is, if you remember, we, we've already looked at Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 3 is the first of the Psalms that has a superscript. Right? Psalm 1 and 2 didn't. And the reason we already talked about this is because Psalm 1 and 2 were like an introduction to all of the Psalms. Right? And so the writer, the, the organizer of the Psalter, seemed to mark it out as separate by taking the superscript out. The superscript is in most of the Psalms, not in Psalm 1 and 2, because they were to rem- kind of a special way of saying this is over the whole book. And remember, we, we learned that the Psalms exist with two main thrusts. One is to teach us to, instead of sitting in the counsel of the ungodly, to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. It was, it was a Christian's devotion to the Word of God. The second Psalm said that all of the Psalms will not only teach us to focus on God's Word, but also and especially on the Word, His Son. Right? It ended with, kiss the Son. Honor the Son. And so the Psalms are about honoring God through our meditation on His law, His Word, and honoring God through our meditation on His Son, Jesus Christ. So just, that was just a reminder what the superscripts, or what the introduction was doing, that the superscripts are now here. I will tell you that this particular superscript, even though now, from now on superscripts are going to happen most of the time, this one is a little unique. It tells us that this is a Psalm by David. About 72 or so psalms of the 150 are by David. But this one tells us not how to play it or what instruments or speed. This tells us when the psalm was written. It's very rare that we find out the context of the psalm. But you can see that David wrote this at a very specific time when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. And so that suggests to me that the context in which this psalm was written helps us connect with this psalm, right? It helps us get emotionally into it. I can understand the psalm better if I understand where was he coming from when he wrote this psalm. And so what I want you to do is, uh, I'm not going to read it, but it might, it might be helpful to p- keep your finger there and flip back to Second Samuel um, I won't read this because the story of David fleeing, it starts in really verse 15, or chapter 15 and goes all the way through 19. That's it's too long for us to read right now. But I will try to give a summary and, and maybe uh, highlight a couple verses here. Here, you know what we can do instead of holding my fingers? I have a little ribbon in my Bible. That's nice. Those things are handy, aren't they? Uh, let, let me point out a couple of things to you. David and Absalom obviously are estranged. Their relationship is broken. And the first thing I want to point out to you is, is kind of why that is. Uh, and, and there's really several failures on David's part that have kind of led to this rebellion that's going to happen. Uh, let, let me read a, a little quote about this. Uh, this, is, this is from a people in the Bible, an A to Z guide of everybody in the Bible. And uh, if you look up Absalom and Ahithophel, two of the people in this story, it says this, there's little question as to why Ahithophel chose to support Absalom against David. Absalom's hatred of his father was not entirely without cause. Among other things, David had rejected Absalom's mother in favor of his adulterous lover Bathsheba. Ahithophel hated David for a similar reason. Bathsheba was his granddaughter, the daughter of his son Eliam, and David had arranged the murder of her husband Uriah in order to marry her. Right, and so when we get into 2 Samuel 15, we realize that there's a lot of people with grudges against, and and that really isn't even the whole thing. Uh, Absalom's also mad because David his daughter, Tamar, had been raped, and David didn't do anything about it. Absalom did, and he's mad at his dad. And so there's this sense in which we start off with the fact that our sins break relationships, right? Our sins ruin our relationships with our people. There's far-reaching effects of it. It messes up our families. It messes up with our friends. Him and Ahithophel were friends, but our sins have huge effects. But 2 Samuel is also helpful because it reminds us that while David is morally culpable, it doesn't mean that Absalom's not. 
right? So this is a really interesting feature that's going on, I think, in 2 Samuel, is that the sins of the parents are visited on their children, right? That, that they are acting out because of that. But that doesn't mean that the children can say, hey, I'm fine because my, my dad sinned first, right? They, they don't become excuses for the kid's sin, even if they have led to that. I just think that's a helpful thing to keep in, in your hat. So Joel, if, if Eddie's mean to you, that doesn't give you the right to be mean to somebody else type of a situation. But that doesn't mean that as parents, right, I should, I should know that the way I act at home is going to affect Dorothy. It's going to affect June. And so I'm, I need to be responsible for that. Uh, anyway, that's, that's not really the story here. That just kind of gives you the reason. Why is Absalom and Ahithophel, they're going to rebel against David. Why is that? There's a big, long story of David's sin. Uh, but what has happened is now Absalom is back in Jerusalem, and he decides in order to get back at his dad for these things that David has done, he is going to begin kind of usurping a little bit of David's authority. David, as the king, was the judge over all of the country. If people had problems, they would come to David. Uh, Absalom said, well, I'll just kind of step in and shield David from some of that, and I'll take these people before they even get into the palace. And by doing that, he began to raise up a group of people who liked him more than his dad. And once that group got big enough, he goes out of the country, out of Jerusalem, he goes into the countryside of Hebron or Hebron, however you pronounce that, and he begins to do some plotting. He calls Ahithophel, and they get a little army together. While they're building this little army in Hebron, somebody gets word to David and says, David, your son is on his way back here to take your throne and to take your life. And so David says, I'm out of here. And so that starts in chapter 15. David is running for his life from his son and from his own armies that Absalom has now taken control of in chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, all the way until 19. David is on the run. Uh, and so that's obviously too much for us to read all of that, but there's one section in here that is, I think, particularly relevant, and that's what's going on in chapter 16, verses 5 through... Um, I'll, I'll just read 5 through 8, even though the section's longer than this. There's, there's a man... Well, I'll just read in 5. It says, When King David came to uh, Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, as he came He cursed continually. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and left hand. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given your kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you. For you are a man of blood. So this guy, uh, Shimei, is saying to David, you messed with my dad, right? And now God is avenging my dad. That's why you're being judged here. And he's saying the, the best thing for you to do is hightail it out of here because you're a guilty man. And there's no, uh, David's going to say in verse 2, that there's no salvation for you with God anymore. You've, you've broken too many laws. You've shed too much blood. There is no more hope for you in God. The best thing you can do is get out of here. I think in verse 2, we're going to see that David may have this particular incident in mind, this idea that maybe my guilt has become so great, there's no more salvation. My son has, God has raised up my son to kill me. He has taken my uh, wives and concubines. He's taken my army. He's taken my palace. He's taken my crown. And he's sending out in, verse, in chapter 17, I believe it's 17, um, Ahithophel suggests, they don't go through this, that he take 12,000 men of David's army to go on a manhunt to have David killed. Um, and, and so that's the setting in which this psalm was written. This setting of my life is being threatened by my own son, by my own army, who's wearing my own crown, I, of, of my own kingdom. 
And, and so he is just distraught by that. Now, I want to turn to verse 1, but I want to pause for a second and talk a little bit just about interpreting the Psalms in general. So this is clearly a Psalm about David and where David's from, but all of the Psalms, I just want to remind you, we talked about this with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, even though David wrote this, like 1200 B.C., they don't become psalms in a songbook until 400 B.C., 400 years before Jesus. So when they become scripture that are distributed for people, uh, it's clear that these aren't psalms for just historical reflection, but they are meant for the people of Israel to understand how they are to live their life that day, but it was also designed to teach them to look forward to the one who's coming, the, the next David, the bigger and the better David. There is a sense in which all the Psalms, but especially these ones with, by David in this historical setting, are meant to be interpreted in three different levels at the same time. We're supposed to say, what is going on with David and how is he feeling emotionally? We're supposed to also ask, how is this like Jesus? How is Jesus the bigger and better David here? How does Jesus do what David did in a way that is even even better, even more? And then we're supposed to ask ourselves, how am I like David in this passage? How, what is being asked of me? What should I do? How can I be the blessed man? I know that the blessed man is Christ, but I'm also being called to live a blessed life by following a certain pattern here. So we have to ask all of those. Um, I'll read this to you, and we'll see if you think it's helpful. If it's not, just chuck it out. But this is Bruce Walkie kind of explaining these three levels. Bruce Walkie is kind of a well-known Old Testament commentator. He says, in short... On the story level, the subject is David, right? And the enemy is Absalom in all Israel. It says on the liturgical level, the fugitive king's petition takes on a prophetic hue, is looking forward to the Messiah. He says on the canonical level, which is canonical just means in the story of the whole Bible, it's about Jesus. Uh, And Jesus' enemy is his own people who reject him, including the high priest and Judas. He says, and then on the moral level, the subject is the faithful saint, and the enemy are those within the nominal Christian church. Moreover, the abstract enemy allows the faithful to apply the enemy to political foes without and uh, with the commentators throughout church history to spiritual struggles within. Although the Hebrew word save normally entails both political and spiritual salvation, and and we'll talk about that more, but, but what he's just getting at is... This psalm can be interpreted in a lot of layers, right? We need to ask ourselves all these. And, and the reason I want to share that is just to let you know, I hope this isn't all the digging into Psalm 3 you do tonight, because I'm not going to get all of that, right? Now, hopefully we'll be out of here before too late. We could be here for several days unpacking the depth of Psalm 3. How does this teach me about David? How does this teach me about Christ? How does this teach me about me? And we'll do some of that, but this is worthy of a lot of study and a lot of thought. All right, that behind us. Let's look at verse 1. And there's really four movements here in Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and then 7, 8. So we'll really look at the first movement, Psalm 1 and 2 together. And I'll read it again to remind you. David says, Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? There are many who are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Uh, Basically, all that's going on in here is he's stating the problem. I'm living in, I have an issue, I have a problem that I'm living with. And the problem on on the first hand is that there's just a lot of people who are my enemies. There's a lot of people who want to take... There's potentially, if Ahithophel had gotten his way, 12,000 men who would be trained soldiers who would be on a manhunt against me. But as you look at verse 2, you realize that's not even really David's greatest concern. Because his biggest concern is not that just there are people trying to attack me. What's really my struggle is that there are many who are saying of my soul... There is no salvation for him in God, right? The crux of this whole psalm and this whole battle is 
can I trust God in this situation when I don't have my crown, I don't have my kingdom, I don't have my armies, my own son is against me, can I still trust God to save me? This is the crucial issue of the whole Bible, really. Can we trust God to save us? I'm not going to do this in every stanza, but I do think just to help us get an idea, how do you, how do you think about this in light of Jesus? Let me read to you from Spurgeon, who applied this same kind of questioning into Jesus' life in a bigger and better way. He says, If all the trials which come from heaven, and all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. He says, But remember, our most blessed Savior had to endure this in the deepest degree when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew full well what it was to walk in darkness and see no light. This was the curse of the curse. This was the wormwood mingled with the gall. To be deserted of his father was worse than to be despised of men. Surely, We should love him who suffered this bitterest of temptations and trials for our sake. It will be a delightful and instructive exercise for the loving heart to mark the Lord in his agonies as here portrayed. For there is here, and in very many other psalms, far more of David's Lord than of David himself. Right? Spurgeon is saying, remember that the worst of all sufferings is to have the doubt that maybe God can't handle this one or won't handle this one. And he said that suffering, to some degree, was endured by our Savior for you and I. Jesus crawled upon a cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer, the only answer, is for the salvation of you and me. This is worthy of reading this and thinking, where is Jesus in this psalm? But I also just want us to think a little bit about our own struggles, right? Hopefully none of you have 12,000 member army that's chasing you down, looking to kill you. But you still, all of us, have many foes who are attacking us at this same basic level. Can I trust that God will save me? Can I trust that God will save me? I, um, well, I'm, let, let me just give some specifics that I think are temptations for us. I spoke to Mary this week. She is uh, working toward her ninth month of chemo and cancer. And I guarantee you that, that the devil's desire here is not to attack her body, but to attack her belief that God can save her. Her body is nothing in the battle, right? Job was attacked by God, not so that the devil, I'm sorry, he was attacked by the devil, not because the devil cared about his wealth. The devil would have been just as happy to give him all kind of wealth, not because he cared about his family, but because he wanted to have Job doubt that God cared, that God could save. The same is true of Mary. The same is true of Greg. Same is true of me and Cannon. Cannon has been sick for quite a while, and she has good days and bad days. But what the devil's greatest aim in her illness is that she would say, God doesn't care. There's no salvation for me and God. The greatest aim in any of our struggles is not the financial loss. It's not the loss of health not the loss of family. It's the loss of confidence that our God will save. That's the central attack of the devil. And Spurgeon, I believe, is right. He said, this is the most bitter of all afflictions that could be pressed upon the heart of any saint of God. The doubt, is God really going to be there for me? Let's move to the next movement, the next two. When I say movements, I'm, I'm talking about 
when I say movements, just so you know, I'm thinking almost like I would think of any song that has verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Well, this doesn't necessarily have choruses, but the verses would be like movements in a song. So I would think of this as the next verse, right? And that's verses two and three. I guess that's why it's confusing to say verse when I think two verses are in a verse. So I'm, that's why I'm using the word movement. But there's a shift that happens, right? That's, there, there's a, a new movement. And the shift comes in three. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I read several commentaries. James Boyce was one that I've enjoyed, but he, he said that most people seem to find verses 5 and 6 to be their favorite. I'll tell you my favorite is verse 3. And that is because, well, you'll see as we unpack it, it's powerful, but there is this shift. The world wants me to doubt God. He says, but you, O Lord, and then he gives us three things. He says, you, O Lord, are three things to me. Uh, Spurgeon calls these the trio of God's mercy. He says, the first thing you are is you are a shield to me. Every attack that's directed in my faith is deflected by you. God's the one who absorbs the attacks of the devil on our behalf. Now, there's several ways in which this is true, and there's several ways in which it's not exactly true. Like, we have to think about this. Let me start with how this is problematic, at least. In some way, we know that God, our shield, allows attacks to get through. Right? There's, in, in some way... We don't fully have our mind wrapped around why, but the devil who is the attacker of Job, for instance, comes to God and says, may I attack Job? I would like to sift him like wheat. And God, the shield, decides whether or not to let this happen. And he says, okay, I'll let you go after Job, which is hard to wrap our heads around. What that shows is that the devil does not have authority to attack us unless God, our shield, decides that this attack is worthwhile in his grand scheme of, of plan here. Right? The, God, the shield can defend against this attack and not even let it happen, but God does allow some attacks to happen. We don't always know the reasons why, but we do know that none get through outside of God saying, I have a purpose and a plan for this. The same way he had a purpose and a plan for Job, I do not have to worry that the devil can, uh, without any restrictions, come after me with any scheme. I have a shield that will protect me. There's another sense in which we know that Christ, our shield, protects us from these attacks by actually taking on the penalties of all of our sins. Right? I'm shielded from the consequences of all my sins because they have been laid on Christ himself. But here David just simply says, I know that whatever attacks can come on me, that I have a defense. I have a person who is guarding me, who has my back here. Says the, first, the first hope, the first mercy here is, you, O oh Lord, are a defender for the defenseless. You are my shield. The second hope, he says, and you are my glory. This is probably my favorite of the three. I don't know. The third might be my favorite. But this is so fascinating because David has just lost his kingdom, right? He's just lost his armies. He has lost his son. And he says, it's all okay because I haven't lost the thing that makes me glorious. I have not lost what makes me joyful and happy because you, not my kingdom, not my finances, not my armies, not my power or authority, you, O oh Lord, are my glory. Asaph is in a different psalmist. says something similar in Psalm 73. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? On earth, there's nothing I desire but you. My flesh may fail, 
My heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. Right? David says, I, I can lose all of these things, and I haven't lost anything that is necessary for my glory, for my happiness. The central thing I need is God himself. You, O oh Lord, are my glory. I think, I think Paul gets this in Philippians 4. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in all things. Right? Whether I'm hungry or fed, whether I'm rich or poor. How can you be content regardless of absolutely any circumstance that could come in your life? How can you say, I'm content? It's because your glory is not rooted in your circumstances. Health is not necessary for me to be joyful, to have glory, because my glory is that God himself has loved me and has given his son on my behalf. My glory is that I can know him and be known by him. So I'm okay. There's a third of these trio of mercies. He says, and God is, Lord, you are the lifter of my head. Let me read. This is another from, I'm reading a lot of Spurgeon, I know. He says, there is a lifting up in honor after shame, in health after sickness, in gladness after, star, after sorrow, in restoration after a fall, in victory after a temporary defeat. In all of these respects, the Lord is the lifter of our head. In other words, he's saying that I believe that the Lord is our redeemer. He's the one who takes us from the low and promises he will lift us to a new height. This is one of the central beliefs of what Christianity is, that when we were lost, that we could be found, that when we were blind, we could see. This is the central attack that the devil is leading toward David, toward Jesus, toward us. God won't really lift your head. David, you're at the lowest point you've ever been, and this is where you're going to stay. There's no better tomorrow. David says, no, no. God is my shield. He's my glory, and he's promised that he's going to lift my head. There is a better day coming. Right? There is something better. He says, God's promised that to me. I know that he is the lifter of my head. I'm not dependent on getting my army back for the lifting of my head. I don't even necessarily have to have my crown or my money or or (laughs) David had way too many wives. Right? I don't need these things, though. The Lord is the lifter of my head. Again, Spurgeon says, what a divine trio of mercies is contained in this verse. Defense for the defenseless, glory for the despised, and joy for the comforted, or for the comfortless. He says, I'm okay. I'm okay when I'm attacked. I'm okay when the devil tries to assault my belief that God can save because I know I have a shield. I have, he is my glory and that he has promised to redeem me, to lift my head. Verse 4 then, verse 3 tells us the, the content of God's mercy, the, the promise that's there. Verse 4 tells us the means by which he gets that. He goes to, he, he just prays, right? He cries aloud. He prays out loud, verbally. I, I don't know if he was alone or with people. But he decided, I'm opening my mouth. I'm getting serious about this prayer. I'm speaking to God. And he says, and God answered me. This is why we believe what we did last Sunday was so incredibly important. Right? Prayer is the means by which we experience our shield. It's the means by which we experience our glory. It is the means by which we experience the lifting of our head. If we believe that it is true that the people in our church are under attack, that the devil is using sickness and broken relationships, bad jobs, 
stress of all types, if he's using that to make us believe there is no salvation in our God, if we want to battle that, there is a truth, but that truth is experienced through prayer. The truth is that God will be my shield, that God will be my glory, and that God will lift my head. How do I go from knowing that to experiencing that? By crying aloud and listening to him answer me on, my, on his holy hill or from his holy hill. That's why prayer is so vitally important to the Christian life. So this is the means by which I will grant you the freedom to conquer these attacks. And that's exactly what he does in the next movement. David says, once I prayed, once God answered me, once I knew I had a shield and glory in the lifter of my head, then I lay down and slept. And I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Just honestly, would you have been able to sleep? Knowing that my son has gained control of my army and is about to send 12,000 men out to take off my head, would you be able to put your head on your pillow and have a sound night's sleep? Knowing that God can let me go to sleep and he can be the one to wake me up. He's got this. He's got control here. No matter what the circumstance happens, it's all okay. Because God is in control. He's my glory. He's my shield. He's the one that has promised that this situation will not be wasted, that he will redeem it. He will lift my head. He will raise me to a new height from this situation. So I'm okay. I can sleep soundly. That is awesome. That is awesome. There is just a complete confidence in the overwhelming sovereignty of God. He has it under control. Just on a side, have you ever noticed how strange it is that we can go to sleep and wake up in the first place? How do you wake yourself up when you're sleeping? You don't. You just trust God will wake me up. Or if he doesn't, then... He's ready for me to be with him. Right? Even the ability to go to sleep and wake up is completely under the control of God himself. And David said, so I'm not going to stress about it. I'm just going to trust the one who is my shield and my glory and the lifter of my head. I wrote this. It was with these promises of certainties. David said, I can sleep well in the face of any uncertainty. With the certainties that God is for me, the uncertainties of who may be against me are irrelevant or minimal. God has my back. There's a fourth movement. And the fourth movement is he comes back to praying again. I'll speculate just a little bit. My suspicion is that David has written this psalm out of order, right? My suspicion is that, not that he made a mistake, but that he's intentionally not done it in chronological order. Verses 7 and 8, I suspect, are the content of the prayer in verse 4, right? In verse 1 and 2, he says, I just had a really bad situation going on. So in verses 3 and 4, so I prayed and I got an answer, Verses 5 and 6, he says, and now I can, I can go on to bed and just trust God's got it under control. Oh, by the way, what did I pray about in verse 4? Well, let me tell you now in verse 7 and 8. I think that's what's going on here. If that's true, though, why take 7 and 8 away from verse 4 and put it at the very end? And I, again, my suspicion is because he says the most important thing I want you to walk away from here is what I'm going to say in verse 8. That salvation belongs to our God. He said, I I intentionally pulled it out, put it in the back as a way of making it an exclamation point. Remember the whole attack of this psalm. The whole attack is that people, the devil especially, wants you to believe there is no salvation for you. 
Right? You'll never get over your fears. Cancer will never feel better. Depression will always be part of your life. Cancer will ruin your family. There's just no hope here. There is no salvation. And they said, look, I'm putting this as the exclamation point. Salvation is what God does. This is the, this is the big idea. So let's look at how he prays about this salvation. He starts with uh, the, the beginning of verse 7, really the only two requests, and, and even that's just a single request. Arise, O Lord, and save me. This arising says, God, I, I need you to stand up, get active, and do something on my behalf. I need you to save me. Okay, what, what am I going to do against 12,000 men? When 12,000 people are hunting my head, I can't do anything, but you can. Save me. Get up and do something about this. Uh, then The second half of seven isn't really a request. right? It, I probably read this over and over and over before it dawned on me. He's not saying, please strike my enemies. He's saying, for you do strike my enemies. Some translations say, for you have already struck my enemies. Save me because you've already saved me, <laughs> which is a, an interesting thing he's saying. Save me because you've already done the exact opposite of what these people are saying you can't do. Right? Remember again, what are his enemies saying? They're saying God won't save you. So he says, get up and save me. Because these guys are telling lies. Do what you've already done. Prove it to them. Show it to them. Show them what you can do. Save me now. The phrase, strike my enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked, is a harsh kind of phrase. It's actually kind of common throughout the Old Testament. It's a way of, uh, it's often talked about beasts and lions, especially, of having teeth. And God says, I will take their teeth out. I will remove their teeth. It's a way of pacifying the enemy. It's a way of saying that these attackers will be all bark and no bite. There's, there's nothing they can actually do. They'll tell you, God can't save you. And you'll say, God has saved me. What do you mean, God can't save me? I have been saved. I've already experienced this salvation, and I'm still experiencing this salvation. What do you mean? There is no teeth in that, there, there's, there's no bite in that bark when you try to convince me that God can't do what God says he will do. He says, God, get up and save me because you've already saved me. Get up and do this so that these enemies will be toothless, weak, impotent attackers. And then verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. You, your blessing, talking to the Lord, be on your people. The central point of this whole psalm, they said, I got to a place where I'm being chased by 12,000 men. And there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. Yet, I put my head in my pillow and I slept and I woke up. Because I know that this isn't my battle anyway. I'm okay with this because I know that God can do what God says he'll do. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This has been our theme for the last two weeks of Sunday morning as well. Right? The purpose of justification, right? that God became both just and the justifier, or the righteous and the one who makes us righteous, so that no one can boast. Right? said the same thing about Abraham. That Abraham was credited to righteousness so that Abraham can't boast. Right? Because of course if Abraham had worked for his righteousness, if, if it was granted to him because of what he did, then he earned it. But he didn't. It was credited to him. So that he can't say, look what I did. All he can say is, he is both holy and the one that makes me holy. He's, he's the beginning and end of my salvation. Salvation is a work of God and God alone. I bring nothing to the table. I offer nothing in the exchange. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
That's the point of Psalm 3. The cool thing is, it's also the reason why I can lay my head down and be confident. Because God's about the, the purpose of proving what he can do. Right? In fact, that's the reason you and I exist. You and I exist purely as God's attempt to display his glory in us through salvation. Right? God says, I want to show you what I'm like. I want to show, what, demonstrate that I am big, that I am holy, that I am merciful, that I'm a God who said he made us to save us. So do I think he's going to fail at this task? Just because 12,000 little men are chasing me and want to cut my head off. That's okay. He made me to save me. I can be confident in that. Let me try to close this with application and, and maybe in a, a slightly different way than I, I do normally. Um, I've been trying to work through about at least one psalm a week with, honestly, with Mary in mind, right? And so I'll read this and I'll pray with Mary. And, and I've, since this I'm preaching to everybody, I kind of want to apply this to, the, to those of us who are just suffering right now. And I just want to remind us all from Psalm 3, what exactly is happening to our church when Mary is attacked with cancer? or Robert, or, or Marcel, or so, just so many of us. What, what exactly is happening? What is happening is that the devil is attacking someone in our family, not primarily physically. That's what we think. That's what we see. That's what, we, that, that's what it appears to be. Why is Mary's body suffering so much? That is not the devil's end game, Right? He, he loves discord of all, of all stripes, but the devil's end game is to convince Mary, to convince Greg, and to convince all of us that there is no salvation in our God. And so our first response has to be what he does in verse 4. We need to cry aloud to the Lord and trust him to answer us. Right? Our first thing is to say, God, our sister Mary, our brother Robert... So many in our congregation, we're being attacked. And, and the devil's not just attacking our bodies. He's attacking our faith and your ability to do what you've promised you'll do. So the first thing I think that we need to do is we need to start begging God. Arise. Save us. Right? That's what David does in Psalm 3. Can we do that for ourselves and do that for our brothers and sisters? Save their faith. Right? Mary, I want God to save Mary. But I also know Mary's eternal. Right? And so her body is a limited body. On this earth, it's limited. The greatest thing I want Mary to say right now is that God, I have spoken to God and he has answered me. Now, the other thing I want God to do, and, and this is what I pray specifically for Mary, is that there's a whole world of people saying God can't heal Mary. Right? So, first off, I want God to protect Mary's faith. But second is, God, why don't you demonstrate your saving power through her? Right? Why don't you heal, not even just for Mary's sake, but why don't you heal her for the whole world's sake to say, this, is, this can't be done. And you say, oh, you think I can't save her? I made her to save her. Right? Why don't you prove your strength in her? And let's beg that of him. That applies physically, that applies spiritually, in every level in which we doubt God will save. Last Sunday, we also prayed for people in our family that we, or, or just in our lives, that we don't believe know Christ. They are aliens and strangers to the fellowship, to the commonwealth of his people. And to be frank, Sometimes it's easy to pray for weeks, and then after a while we begin to say, oh, God's not going to save them. We, we begin to think, there's no salvation here in God, not for these people. And so will we redouble our efforts to say, God, 
do what you made them to do. You made them to save them. So do that. Prove yourself here. And then we need to live in light of the belief that this isn't the end, right? That however low I feel right now, God has promised, I am lifting your head. There's a better day ahead of you. And we live on what I've heard people call borrowed joy. Knowing that the future is tomorrow is a better day than today. And I'm going to have, I'm going to borrow the joy of tomorrow and experience it today. Knowing God is not done. He has promised to be my shield, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Let me make one last application for all of us here. I wonder if there's anyone in this room who has thought, I'm okay with God. Because of something I've done. This morning, and now again tonight, the central message of the text is, that is completely wrong. Salvation belongs to God and God alone. Today, would you be willing to talk to him and and maybe to talk to me or Pastor Johnny or someone in this room and say, I've trusted in myself. Not in God alone. Will you make a commitment today to let him be your savior? To say, God, I I don't deserve salvation. There's nothing I can do to earn salvation. But you have promised to give it freely. And will you accept that free gift on your account and walk in thankfulness to that? I'd like to pray. If the music team wants to come up, we'll move into a time of response. Dear Lord, your word is amazing. And we're just so incredibly thankful that you have promised to shield us, that you have promised to be our glory and the lifter of our heads. We pray right now for those in our congregation, in our family, who we know the devil is strategically attacking them with the goal of eroding their faith. One of the most awesome things about suffering is that you say that what the devil intended for evil, you use for good. And so many times we have seen spiritual growth in the face of suffering, uh, not only in spite of it, but because of it. And so we're asking that um, you grow us in this time in complete confidence of your saving ability and that you will lift our heads. I pray this in your name. Amen.